All right, well, I got to admit, I'm fired up this morning. First of all, that song, the clapping song, just got me going. And then uh, Dave, the bominator, just got me all fired up. Man, hey, we're just talking about Columbus winning it for Christ. And so, um, yeah, so who knows how this is going to go. I'm excited. Let's go. Mark chapter 13 is where we find ourselves. We're finishing up that beautiful chapter where Jesus speaks about the end times. And so as you're finding Mark chapter 13, we'll finish that up this week. If you're using one of the Bibles that's in the chair in front of you, on the rack in the chair in front of you, you can find Mark chapter 13 on page 850. And by the way, as we say every week, if you don't have a Bible, um, you're welcome to take that Bible and keep it as your own. But if you forgot your Bible and that Bible is an upgrade from your normal Bible, I mean, come on now. I mean... Just maybe upgrade your own Bible, okay? But if you don't have one, um, you're welcome to take that one. All right, a couple things before we get into this. My boys and I have been limping through the week. My wife and my two youngest children are away in the nation of California visiting my family. And um, so, you know, honestly, the first couple nights that they're away, it's kind of like, hey, it's kind of cool, you know, you, you know, I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> Um, but we have, uh, the, the week has sort of devolved, and um, we are limping to the finish line. Uh, you can only eat so much Taco Bell and Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Although uh, a sweet sister from our community group rescued us with a huge, huge meal of brisket and all sorts of awesomeness. Um, and I was supposed to actually save that until Jennifer comes home tonight for a nice little welcome home meal. I think there's still enough for all of us, but... Um, Anyway, she's getting home tonight with the little ones, uh, Abe and Bella, so praise God for that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Well, let's get into, let's get into Mark chapter 13. Um, as we talked about last week, we're going to pick up on verse 24 today and work our way through the end of the chapter, so verses 24 through 37. And as we mentioned last week... This is a chapter in the Bible, Mark chapter 13. It corresponds to Matthew chapter 24. These gospels, uh, the gospels each, you know, are kind of arranged differently, but Mark 13 is recording the same, basically the same material that's recorded in Matthew chapter 24, where during this last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry before his crucifixion, he speaks to his disciples about the end of the age, about about his return, and what makes this chapter, which is oftentimes called the Olivet Discourse, because it was a discourse, discourse or a speech or a teaching that he gave on the Mount of Olives, what makes it oftentimes difficult to uh, interpret and understand is that there seems to be two horizons in what Jesus is, is pointing to here. He's speaking about this this end of the age when um, it seems to be there will be an increase in things like wars and kingdoms rising up against each other and um, that there will be uh, earthquakes that will increase in frequency and then there will be this, this really notable um, huge event where Jesus, what he calls, using a phrase back in the Old Testament and Daniel, that the abomination of desolation or maybe more plainly said in our present um, terms, uh, uh, an affront, a, a time when the Antichrist or this man of lawlessness 
really does a frontal assault against God's holiness and exalts himself in the temple as a sort of direct assault on God. Um, that these things will take place, and then, um, as we'll read today, a few other signs uh, that seem to be cataclysmic in nature, and then the end will come. And what makes interpreting and understanding this chapter particularly difficult is it seems that Jesus is sort of speaking on two horizons here, that there's this near aspect to the fulfillment of the things that he's talking about, and that near event was about 40 years after Jesus um, said these words, there was this real historical event where Rome, the Roman Empire, came and destroyed Jerusalem and primarily, principally destroyed the temple because of a Jewish uprising and rebellion against Roman rule. And so, in one sense, a lot of what Jesus says seems to kind of maybe apply to this event that happened in the first century where Rome came and destroyed the temple and in a near sort of sense set up the Roman emperor, the abomination of desolation, really declared himself as deity right there um, in this very holy place. But yet, Jesus also seems to be speaking clearly about this, this time in the future where he is coming again. And so, like a lot of prophecy, even in the Old Testament, there seems to be this near sort of partial foreshadowing fulfillment of it but ultimately even these near events that 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 seem to fulfill these prophecies are actually pointing more fully to a time that Jesus is speaking of this time to come where he will come again and so I know that's kind of like some of you are like uh my head hurts now so we, we really, last week, just settled on this one point that I think all Christians, regardless of what they think about you know, these specific events or even the timing of Jesus' return, that all Christians can agree on this one great glorious truth. And we settled on it. This is what we talked about last week, is that Jesus will come again in power and glory to judge the living and the dead and will finally and fully vanquish Satan and all evil and establish his kingdom forever and ever and ever. Amen. And so we can all agree on that, and we can all long for that. And that brings us now to, to verse 24, where we're going to continue about midway through the chapter. So some of what we're going to talk about today is in the same vein of what we talked about last week. There, there seems to be maybe this near but yet distant fulfillment of this. And here's my point today, friends. I want to, want to sort of release you from any stress there's going to be no notes today. No, well, I mean, maybe you'll take notes if something hits you. I mean, you're, you can do that. Um, but I don't have anything on the screen. A lot of times I have little bullet points summarizing my points. Uh, really, most of that happened last week for this chapter and what I just read there, that Jesus will come again in power and glory to defeat Satan and establish his reign finally and fully forever, I think is what we still really need to know is the overarching truth in this chapter. But here's my, my aim today is to, in light of the truths that we looked at last week, that all Christians can agree on, regardless of where they may fall in the timing of these events, my aim today now is to impress on us, the believers in this room, and the people that are not yet believers in this room, the imminent, the soon nature of Jesus' sure and certain return, and I pray that it would help stir our hearts so that we would 
long for and prepare for Jesus' return. So that's my whole goal today, is just to, to stir our affections so that Christians in this room would long for Jesus and his return, and that people that might not yet be Christians in this room, as the text says, as Jesus warns us, that we would wake up and our hearts would be prepared for Jesus' return. All right, deal? Okay, let's pray, and then we'll work through it. Father, thank you. I am so thankful. You've been so good to us. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us as a church. Thank you for David and Marie Baum and their, their desire to see people come to Christ and their desire to just plant a church in our city where, where people can grow into the image and likeness of Christ. Lord, we need that church and we need dozens and dozens and dozens more. Lord, would you cause a revival in this town of gospel-centered churches that are fierce and bold and compassionate and courageous and brokenhearted for the lost. And as we pray for this new church, Lord willing, we pray also for churches in this city who we love dearly. I pray for my friend Jeff Struker at Calvary Baptist Church and and Pastor Don Wilhite there, who's retiring soon, and Jeff will take over that church. I, I pray for your grace and your blessing on that church. I pray for my dear friend Keith Coward at Christ Community, and I pray, Lord, that you would bless that church and encourage Keith and his team, and I pray that people would come to Christ today, even in that, in that church. I pray for my friend Mitch McGinnis at Westminster Presbyterian Church on Double Churches Road. Thank you for that dear brother and his firm love of the gospel, his commitment to caring for orphans. Lord, bless that church. Lord, we thank you for all the other churches in our city that are preaching the gospel and believing the Bible, and we pray that you would grow them and increase them and that you'd give them great blessing. And now as we turn our attention to this, to this text... We pray that you'd help us. And even as I just think about opening up this Bible so freely, I think about soldiers that are part of this church that are fighting, even one in particular, a man that's part of this church that deployed even this week to go serve in Afghanistan. Lord, bless him and his family. And Lord, I pray for open doors for the gospel in the Muslim world, in Afghanistan, in Iraq in other places. And as we open your book freely today, humble us. May the word judge us. And may, Lord, Christians be stirred with more love for Jesus. And may unbelievers be brought to life through your amazing grace. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's go. Verse 24, Jesus continuing. But in those days... After that tribulation, remember Jesus has spoken about this time where there will be an increase in uh, wars and earthquakes. It will be like a woman's birth pains as she's in labor and increasing frequencies. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming in clouds with great power and glory. 
And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Okay, let's stop there and and just handle a couple things. First of all, this word tribulation. Now, that's a, a huge sort of theological issue that for centuries Christians have debated and people that are well within the faithful spectrum of faithful Christianity believe different things about the tribulation. And, and, and so this is um, a, an, an issue that is not essential to, uh, to Christianity, your differing view on the tribulation. But just to let you know, this is one area that Christians often think about and have different interpretations. Some people believe that the tribulation has already happened and that Jesus is speaking clearly about just the events leading up to the physical destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire a few years prior to and around A.D. 70. And certainly that was a, a, a turbulent time full of tribulation. Some people think that when Jesus speaks about a tribulation, he's speaking primarily about Um, there being a tribulation sort of all the way through the church age that we're in now, and that there will be then this sort of great tribulation that will be a specific period of time. Generally, people that hold to this view think it's about seven years, and it corresponds to a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. It's a very complex argument outside of the purview of the sermon today. But some people believe that there's this sort of time in the future that will be a very specific period of time where there's this great tribulation. And then others believe that the church age in general is marked by a sort of increasing tribulation and that ultimately that tribulation will, will continue to increase and Jesus will come back. And so um, I don't think it's particularly important that, that you, know, you have one or the other. I think, I think we can all agree that the church age, even for those Christians that believe that that when Jesus speaks about a tribulation, he's talking about something that happened in the past. I think all of us can agree that we live in a time, maybe not in Columbus, Georgia, in America, but we live in a time even now where Christians endure horrible persecution and trial and tribulation. And it should cause us as American Christians to be very humble and to pray for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world that are going through very difficult times. And then there's this other uh, uh, question about this particular group of verses here is that there seems to be this cataclysmic language here. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now, some people think that this happened. This is one area where I clearly think this has not happened, that Jesus is talking about this time in the future. But, but regardless of whether you think that these events that Jesus has described here are literal or figurative, there's lots of debate about that, I think we can all agree that Jesus is speaking about this cataclysmic, unmistakable event that will happen before his physical return. He, it will not be in doubt. He will come in power and glory, and the heavens will be shaken. There will not be one square inch. There will not be one inhabitant of this earth who it is not clearly and unmistakably known that Jesus is coming in great power and glory. And then in in verse 24, I'm just so encouraged by this, it says, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. 
But when I read things like that, friends, it just stirs my heart for the peoples of the world. Do you realize that when, when you read this, it, it, your heart should start to beat for the nations. Jesus is, is saying that I'm not just gathering people from Jerusalem and the surrounding area, and I'm not just gathering people from the Bible Belt South. Uh, he is, when he comes again, that Jesus has a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Listen to these words at the end of the Bible in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. I love these words. Every time I read them, it just grabs my soul and makes my heart beat harder for the nations and for missions. This is what John writes, the disciple John, at the end of his life in the island of Patmos, as he writes this revelation. Chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. He's speaking now. But this gathering of God's people at this end of the age, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Did you catch the front part of that? That there's going to be people from every tribe and every nation and every people group around that great throng of God's redeemed singing this song with these angelic creatures. Man, that excites me. What implications does that have for us as a church? It means that right now we as a predominantly Caucasian group of people should be radically committed to the reconciliation of the races in our time. Because, friends, that's where we're going. And, and as much as we can bring the future into the reality, we are mirroring what heaven will be like. And so practically, that means that I, man, I should have a, I should, my head should be on a swivel right? It's, it's getting ready for football season, and my dad was a football coach, and I can just remember him getting amped up before every football season, and I can remember him saying to my brother, who was a defensive player, much tougher than I would. He actually used to tackle people. I used to try and run away from people, but he would say to my brother all the time, my brother was a, just a little bruiser, just a middle linebacker, just used to plow kids, and he would say, Todd, get your head on a swivel. You know, just be out there in the middle of the field, just looking who, who you can go after. And I'm not saying we should go tackle people from other ethnicities. I'm saying that our head should be on a swivel to go after and love and engage people from others. So if you see somebody maybe not like you, not the same skin color or just maybe not the same neighborhood, man, your heart should beat and you should say, oh, God is giving us this kind grace to even now begin to show us what heaven will look like and we should, our head should be on a swivel for people not like us with skin darker or lighter or whatever the case is. Our heart should be on a swivel for them. Now listen, if you're white, I like you too. Don't, don't, don't mistake me. I'm glad you're here. But I'm saying, isn't that a kind grace of a church that is leaning forward into heaven that they begin to be marked by this beautiful 
diversity. Oh, let's long for that, church. Let's long for that, and uh, let's rejoice. And let's have individual. How does that happen? Let's just have our head on a swivel, and let's preach the gospel, because God draws people not to styles. God draws people to Jesus, and Jesus fits every culture. Amen. So, verse 28, let's continue. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gate. These things, I think, refers to the things that we read about last week, these wars and earthquakes and this abomination of desolation. I'm in a sense fulfilled to some degree, but I think it's a foreshadowance of a future fulfillment when this Antichrist will come and exalt and lead people astray and exalt himself. When you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So, okay, a couple things here that we need to just unpack a little bit and think about from this paragraph. First is this issue of the fig tree. What is this fig tree? What is it referring to? I think some people interpret this as referring to ethnic Israel and would see that the reconstitution of Israel as a political nation, primarily made up of almost predominantly of ethnic Jews, even in this last century, in 1948, as a sort of fulfillment of this prophecy. And so they would, they would view verse 28 as um, saying that this fig tree, which oftentimes in the scripture is used as a symbol of, Jerus- of the Jewish people, that this fig tree symbolizes the nation of Israel being brought back together politically and nationally and ethnically, and we've seen that in our lifetime, again in 1948, and so they're saying that now that this, this tree is brought back together, I mean, it's putting out leaves as a, as a nation in a sense, that this is a sign of, of the imminence of Jesus' return. And, and I think to some degree I, I, I agree with that, although I think I would um, not, not want to press that point too much but I do think that Romans 11, and I know I'm getting into the weeds a little bit here, so let me just briefly say that Romans 11, this beautiful book, and specifically Romans 9, 10, and 11, that speak about God and his, his salvation, and specifically about how he deals with his people, the Jews, the ethnic Jews in the Old Testament. It does say in Romans 11, I think very clearly, that God will not ultimately forsake the ethnic Jew, but that will give them another opportunity to regraft them back into the olive tree. And so I do think, to some degree, that the reconstituting of the nation of Israel is clearly and obviously within God's providence. And part of what God may do is a special evangelistic effort to pour out His grace so that even in these days before Jesus comes again, He might one more time offer His grace to the Jews. But that's a, we could, again, get into the weeds about that. 
Or, or some people just believe that the fig tree is, is, is just more of a general statement that when we see these signs happening, it's like you see on a tree that's bearing fruit. So the, these, these, these signs are kind of like fruit, so it's in a more general sense. So you're free to believe whatever you want about that. And then likewise, many people have debated <coughs> about what Jesus means when he speaks about this generation. So in verse 30, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. So what is Jesus speaking about there? Well, some people think that Jesus, when he talks about this generation, was speaking about those disciples, those people right there that in the present time that he was speaking to, and that that gives credence to the fact that Jesus in this chapter is talking about all of this is, was fulfilled in the first century because, in a sense, a lot of these signs came true in the destruction of Jerusalem. Some people think that he's speaking about just ethnic Israel and that the nation of Israel will not pass away until Jesus returns. And they see a lot of credence for that view, again, in the reconstitution of Israel as a nation after World War II in 1948. Other people, and I think I would fall into this third camp, I see sort of multiple fulfillments in there. I see both as being significant in a sense. I think that in one sense, Jesus was speaking to those people right then. And in a partial foreshadowing sense, the, some of these events um, were fulfilled, but they were only in a foreshadowing sense pointing towards this greater reality when this time would happen when Jesus comes back. Okay. We're getting out of the weeds now. We're coming back onto the fairway, and let's continue the rest. I know those are very intricate and things that people have wrestled with for a long time. What are we to make of this? Regardless of whether you think about the fig tree or this generation, I think everybody in this room can agree that Jesus has not come back again yet for a second time. And so... We need to lean forward into his soon return. And, and we, should, we should be confident of that, not just because of world events, although they certainly seem to be lining up clearly with what Jesus has said is going to happen, but because Jesus has said it, and that's what he says in verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is God. He's not just a, man, a, a moral teacher. He is God, and if he says it, it will come to pass. And, and see, that's my concern really for my own heart and for us as a church, is that we can have like good doctrine, and we can understand the scriptures you know, well, and we can even have a right understanding of the Word of God and believe that the Word of God is God's Word and that Jesus is God and that what He says is true. But it can just sort of stay up here as a sort of theoretical, theological category that never actually presses down on my life. You see, I can believe all the right things, but it can have zero impact on my life. In fact, James says that even the demons believe. And it doesn't have any impact on their behavior. In fact, they rebel against it. This is what James also says about the word of God. He says in chapter 1, verse 21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word 
meaning the word of God, which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. You see, I think there's a way of being an American Christian where you can actually arrive at all the right doctrinal, theological conclusions, but your heart can still be cold. And you can read this and get into a a debate about what the fig tree is and what this generation means, and it doesn't actually press on your soul to produce in you a confidence that Jesus intends for us in verse 31, that heaven and earth, I mean, come hell or high water. I mean, whatever happens, that his word stands forever. I think that's the thing that I want to draw away from that discussion, to know that Jesus said that he is coming back to judge the living and the dead and will finally and fully vanquish Satan and establish his rule forever. Well, let's keep going. Verse 32. Oh, this is important. Verse 32. Man, we've got to settle down on this man, for just a second. Okay, verse 32. But concerning that day or hour. All right, put your, put your thinking caps on now. But concerning that day or hour. This is Jesus speaking. No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. All right, now wait a minute, Brad. You have been spending the last eight months in the Gospel of Mark, chapters 1 through 12, establishing the fact that Jesus is fully God. So what are you saying here? That Jesus, how does that work? That if Jesus is fully God, how can he not know the timing of his return? Okay, great question. Let's, let's get into it. Here's what I think is happening in this text. Is that Jesus is speaking to us from his earthly human nature. Okay, and so, so this was a huge debate in the first couple centuries of the church. In fact, in the fourth century, they had this huge council called the Council of Nicaea to, to think about the nature of who Jesus was is because we as Christians believe that Jesus is fully God. He was not created. He is pre-eternally existent with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and he's fully God, but yet he is also fully man and has been pre-eternally fully man. So there's this dual nature of Jesus, and friends, that is a difficult thing to wrap our minds around. And they came up with this thing in the 400s called the Chalcedonian Creed. I'm going to read a little bit of it to you, and it's, it's, uh, I just love the way it's stated. So here it is. They say, we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial, uh, that means together, at the same time, substance with the Father, according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us, according to manhood, in all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the, isn't this blessing you? I know you're scribbling this down. Begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, listen to this now, born of a virgin, Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood. Now listen to these words. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, 
unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures, meaning his humanity and his godness, being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each, meaning his man, his, his humanity, and his divinity, the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, God, the Word, the Lord, Jesus Christ. I can tell you're not as excited as I am about that early church council. But friends, people died over that statement, wrestling with that statement to give us the faith that's been handed down through the centuries, saying that it is not a contradiction. Certainly it's a mystery and there's a, there's a finite there's an inability for us to really kind of answer all of these questions, but saying that Jesus is one, Jesus is God, but Jesus is the combination of these two natures. And so when Jesus, meaning humanity and divinity, that when Jesus in his earthly life is saying that he as Jesus the man, the Jewish carpenter, doesn't know the time of his return, is speaking in that sense as Jesus the man. But Jesus, his other nature, God, clearly knows. So don't, don't from this take a sort of subordination of Jesus or a less than view of Jesus because this is where it's really important. You need to know that your Savior is fully God and fully man. Why is that so important? Because, friends, if you lose Jesus' divinity, if you lose his full godness, then you lose his ability to truly pay for sin. And if you lose his humanity, then you lose God's identification with the people that he is saving. The church fathers put it this way, only man ought to pay for sin, but only God can satisfy the payment of sin. And in Jesus, the perfect God-man, we see this beautiful, inexplainable combination. The man, Christ Jesus, the God-man, the mediator between God and man. Friends, whether you fully understand that or not, that is important to understand, that Jesus is able to die for the sin of mankind. And let's just talk before we move on about sin. I think when we talk about sin in the American context, it's easy for us to think about, okay, well, I realize that Jesus needed to die for like, you know, my little secret rebellion or my sin or my, you know, the sin of maybe a, a criminal or a terrorist or even my, you know, my more obvious sin. But I think where a lot of, especially Americans, get tripped up is they think, yeah, but what about, what about the good moral, and I put that intentionally in quotes, what about the good moral person who's an unbeliever? Like, why, why is their sin worthy of condemning them to hell if they don't repent and believe in Jesus? Well, first of all, I would challenge your notion of, of good but let's just run with the argument for just a second. Let's say, okay, there's a good, 
guy that's kind of relatively moral and does all sorts of good things, gives all sorts of money to charity, helps build orphanages in the third world, does all sorts of stuff, but he's not a believer. Okay, let's just classify this. See, that there's a person like that. Let me create another scenario with you. What if you had a father and a mother, and they had a child, and they gave birth to that child, and they gave that child every grace. They loved that kid. They nurtured that boy. They gave him shelter. They gave him food. They gave him a good education. They took him to all the right, you know, they monogrammed his shirts. They bought him all the, you know, like the $80 gear, just like soccer stuff, and got him everything he needed, you know, and, you know, all the crazies. I mean, man, it's hard to be a parent today with all these activities. My goodness, if your kid shows up with just stuff, you know, he's like, who's this crazy kid that doesn't have tricked out gear? Anyway, enough of that. But the point is, is they did everything they can to, to just bless and encourage and, and, and nurture this kid. And this kid in high school is the valedictorian of his high school. And he, at 18 years old, gets accepted to full scholarship and goes to Harvard. And no, no, not even get, his parents pay his way to Harvard. And he gets this great education. He graduates from Harvard as a valedictorian. He gets a wonderful job in New York City as, let's just say, a, a stockbroker on Wall Street. And he's making all this money, and he's doing his good thing, and then he starts to do good things with his money. But let's just say that when he leaves home, he never acknowledges his parents again. He drives out of the parking lot, goes to college because of their, the way they nurtured him. He now builds this successful, moral life, and he never calls his parents again, never thanks them. His mom calls him, hey, are you coming home from Thanksgiving? Just call her ID. Oh, it's mom. And I answer the phone. But yet he does all of these good things. We wouldn't call that guy good. We'd call him an ungrateful punk who needs to call his mother. Wouldn't we? Wouldn't we? So do you see, on an infinitely grander level, that any good is only good in as much as it acknowledges the fountain of all good which is God our creator. Friends, that's why moral people that don't acknowledge God are not truly moral people. They are ungrateful rebels against God, their creator. Do you see that? And Jesus comes as the perfect God-man to die not just for obvious sin, but self-righteous morality. And it's important that we know who Jesus is. So let's keep going. I didn't intend for all that. That has not much to do with this chapter, but that was just a little icing on the cake. Let's end it. Verse 33. Be on guard. Now all of this, Jesus is ending this now with his admonition. All of this now comes to this. Because of everything he's just said, be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, verse 35, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come. And clearly there he's referring to his return, when he will come again, in the evening or at midnight. Or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. 
So the point that Jesus is making in this very difficult chapter, where I think he's speaking to two horizons, but ultimately more prominently to this time which is yet to be fulfilled when he will come again, and all of these signs point to it, is all of it is to produce in us a vigilance, a watchfulness, not a fear if we're Christians, but a longing for this day when Jesus will finally and fully vanquish Satan and I will not have to deal with my sin anymore. And the broken effects of human rebellion will once and finally be set straight. So here's my question that I want us to end on. Jesus is telling us, Christians and non-Christians, to stay awake. Have you considered what lulls you to sleep? I'm talking spiritually now. I was thinking about this earlier this weekend. I was thinking about our, our kids are all older now. Our youngest is about to be six, and, you know, he's, he's pretty good with not having to take, I mean, he doesn't take naps during the day. But I can remember when our oldest, you know, first-time parents, and just the, just the tricks you would play as a parent to try and get your kid to go to sleep. Do you remember that? And I mean, I mean, there were times we'd be like coming home with Joseph in the little car seat in the back, and we'd do a few laps. I mean, we'd drive like, we'd, man, we'd like drive to Atlanta and back if it meant that he would fall asleep, be like sound asleep, so that the little click off the little baby carrier that we could take him and actually put him to sleep because we didn't want to have to deal with him taking a little cat nap making him wake up, and then staying up until 2 o'clock in the morning, right? I mean, in fact, there were times, I, I, Jennifer's not here, so well, maybe she won't listen to the podcast. There were times when she wasn't at home for some particular reason, and I had to put Joseph to sleep. I'd load that kid up, and I'd do laps around Columbus because I knew that the hum of the motor would cause him to fall asleep. I'd just keep driving, look back, rearview mirror, still going, just keep doing laps. And I would go one time, oh, this is terrible, one time I actually was running out of gas as I was trying to lull him to sleep, and I filled up the car while the engine was still running, knowing that that's like, you're not supposed to do that spark, blow up the gas station, all that kind of stuff, I get that, but I didn't want to turn off because I, didn't, I wanted him to stay asleep, and I wanted him to go into like deep rim sleep, you know? Have you considered that this broken world is not neutral and it is trying to put us to sleep Christians so that it will lull us away it's like a it's like a, a little Greek you know siren that little old m Greek mythology just like on that island just trying to draw us away just trying to draw mariners away from their intended course do you realize that the world is like that? What lulls you to sleep? And, and listen, maybe it's not some obvious thing. You know what dulls my heart? ESPN. Football season. This does something to me. I, I love it. I'm not saying it's evil. I grew up the son of a football coach. But I have to guard my heart about how much I just sort of have that stuff on just sort of dulls my affections, you know? What dulls your heart? It just kind of makes you just unattentive and not leaning forward. 
What might need to be reorganized in your life? What priorities might need to be changed? Am I living a life that is confusing the truth of the gospel to an onlooking world by making too much out of the comforts of this world and as a result, my life is not pointing forward to the world which is to come. What is lulling me and you to sleep? Ah, that's for, for you to wrestle. That'd be a wonderful question to ask over lunch today. Unbeliever, I end with a, a question to you. Or really a statement. Don't be confused. Despite the fact that we as Christians oftentimes may confuse you, Christianity is not a message about moral living or ethics or self-improvement. It's the story of how God, the creator of all the universe, is making all things right through Jesus, the God-man, and his perfect life and his death on the cross where he absorbed God's wrath and punishment for the sin of all people that would ever turn and trust in Jesus and then defeated that sin and death and evil and all of its consequences by his resurrection, by defeating death, by coming back to life, and now is ascended at the right hand of the Father, and he promises this same Jesus who defeated death, who walked on water, who calmed the storm, who rose people from the dead, who even himself defeated death, promises that he will return. Does it take faith to believe that? Yes. And you, even now, I pray even through the communication of these truths from me to you, might have faith in that. Because Jesus is coming back. And the point of Christianity and the point of the Bible is not to give you some principles on how to live better now, but to how to live for that day when Jesus comes. Will it affect you in this life and will it help you live better? Certainly. The focus, friends, is preparing for that day when Jesus comes back. Will you be awake for that? Will you be trusting in him or in yourself? Friends, that's the most important question you can answer in your life. I plead with you, if you consider yourself not to be a Christian, to consider that question. Where's your trust? What are you living for? Jesus is coming back. He will judge all of us. And the good news of the gospel is, is that if you're in Christ, he has taken your judgment. And if you're not in Christ, it will be a dreadful day. I pray that you would wake up and trust in Jesus. Well, friends, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us respond now. Father, thank you for this beautiful chapter. It has stretched me and us. I know that sometimes we're tempted to fear these words as strange, scary, apocalyptic language. Lord, I pray for my friends in this room who are believers in Jesus that there's nothing we should fear, that this day is the day when Jesus finally and fully sets all things straight and that we, as Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, should long for his appearing. 
Lord, produce in us, those of us that are trusting in Christ, lives that every little arrow in our life is pointing towards that day, that world that is not this world because we know that we were made to live with you and not just for these 80 or 90 years. Lord, reorganize our life to long for and point towards that day. And for my friends in this room who are not yet believers, maybe they came into this room and they thought they were, and by your grace, you've given them realization that they are not trusting in Christ. They're trusting in themselves. God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Give them a heart to believe and ears to hear and see Jesus. My friends that came into this room knowing themselves not to be a Christian, but were just invited by a friend, Lord, I pray. In fact, I think the way that I can love them best is to not soft pedal the message of the Bible by telling them how all of these things will help them if they will just sort of live a certain way because we can't live that way. Only Jesus has lived that way and our only hope is trusting in his life, not ours. So Lord, would you help my friend that came in not trusting in you and would you cause them to see Jesus in all of his beauty and would they look to him and not to themselves? Would they be like that son who maybe has lived a, a moral life, but really that morality is, is nothing unless it acknowledges its source. And when they look back, when they look back to their father and run to him and trust in him and believe in you through Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd do these things for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, let's all stand and spend a few moments responding to these words.